Anduril is a technology defense company with a focus on drones, computer vision, and other problems related to national security. It's a full-stack company that builds its own hardware and software, leading to a great many interesting questions about cloud services, engineering workflows, and management. Gokul Subramanian is an engineer at Anduril, and he joins the show to share his knowledge of how Anduril operates and what the company has built. Gokul, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks for having me. You work at Anduril, which is a modern defense company. Describe the canonical engineering problems of Anduril. Yeah, absolutely. So Anduril is really, I'll just take a step back and say, and at a high level, Anduril is really here to solve the hardest and most complex problems in the defense space. And, and really, if you think about the defense space, it's a combination of hardware and software and bringing those two things together in the real world for real world applications. Those kind of at the highest level, that is the, those are the canonical problems that we end up solving. If I think about Android as a company, you know, we're, we're really a software first company. So things like how do we do computer vision, machine learning, uh, autonomy on hardware platforms, those are the challenges that, that we're looking to solve. And those are the, the problems that we're actively working on. You mentioned computer vision. How is computer vision used at Anduril? Yeah, absolutely. So for us, computer vision is one of the many sensor modalities that we are integrating in real time on both our own platforms that we build. So for example, our Sentry Tower, our Ghost UAS, our Anvil Interceptor Drone, all of those systems, you know, these are airplanes, helicopters, towers, have cameras on them. And we are processing those cameras in real time to detect objects of interest, utilizing modern computer vision techniques. Okay. And we should say at this point that Anduril is, makes lots of use of drones. Can we talk a little bit about the drones and where are these drones from? Are they built within Anduril? What kinds of roles are drones fulfilling? Yeah, great question. So we've got a number of different products. The, in terms of drones, we have two major drone platforms. We've got one called our Ghost UAS, and that's a, roughly a 30-pound drone that we build in-house. It's a helicopter drone, so uh, vertical takeoff can fly for a little over an hour. And it's, it's really used for what's called intelligence, surveillance, and reconnaissance. So if I am in a new area that I know little about, or I'm trying to defend an area, the drone's purpose is to be able to surveil that area with very little operator input without taking up a lot of manpower and be able to alert you if there are things of interest going on. So that's our Ghost UAS. And the second one is our Anvil Interceptor drone, and that's a much smaller drone, roughly about five to 10 pounds. And its job is to defend airspace. So the idea here is if we have an adversary sending a drone at a base, and we know this has happened to the United States multiple times, the Anvil's job is to fly out, intercept that adversary drone or potentially an adversary weapon and smash into it, deter the weapon from getting to the, to the U.S. base. So these are just two of the drones that we build. We've got a number of other products. Some, some of them are not drones, so our Sentry Tower is another good example. And all of these, I would say the really interesting thing going on here is that we do all of our processing in real time on these systems. So they're constantly sensing their world through computer vision, as we discussed, and other modalities. 
And we're processing and making decisions in real time on these systems. Real time is, of course, a loaded word. Nothing happens in real time. There's always some kind of loop or series of steps that must be taken in a real time system. Can you talk about latency sensitivity and and how much latency you can afford in these kinds of applications? Yeah, absolutely. Let me take one of the use cases and we can dive in deep on it. So with our counter UAS system, which is a combination of our Anvil um, interceptor drone and our sentry tower, those two have to work together in quote unquote real time to defeat a threat. And as you said, real time is a loaded word, but we're talking on the order of milliseconds that those two are communicating back and forth with the sentry tower detecting a threat and telling the Anvil drone where to go to intercept it. And we are, so things, specific um, parameters I can give you are tower is detecting and tracking targets at 20 hertz, so 20 times a second. It's constantly updating the position of where a target might be. And our Anvil drone is going after that position at that same speed. On board, the Anvil drone is able to detect with its own cameras and sensors at upwards of 30 hertz, uh, so 30 times a second, the position of a threat drone. And it's constantly updating its own internal navigation and guidance system based on those inputs. Computer vision is a very broad field. There's a lot of off-the-shelf models that you can take these days. You can also train your own machine learning models. What kinds of machine learning models have you built for computer vision? And are there things that you can take off the shelf? Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. We leverage a lot off what's been done in academia and in industry that are off the shelf or open source. So you can broadly take two different uh, classes of of machine learning that, that we're doing. We're doing computer vision. In that case, we're looking at mostly optical data, electro optical data, and we end up using off-the-shelf models, and then retraining those models with our own adjustments, parameter optimization, hyperparameter optimization, and data that we collect on our own. So a good example of this might be our sentry tower has the ability to detect drones in the sky. We start with an off-the-shelf model. We might use something like YOLO v4 or faster RCNN, two of the most popular object detection models. And then we've done significant adjustment of those models because In the open source community, there's not a lot of drone training data available. And so we refine those models with our own data and our own training techniques to get really high performance on the threats that we're interested in. We also do a lot of machine learning on sensors that are not optical. And so a good example of this might be radar. And so we've got our own machine learning models that are looking at radar measurements coming in from one or more of our sensors and doing things like target classification. So I see radar returns out in the environment. Is that a drone or a bird or is that a car driving down? We use a lot of machine learning techniques to make those decisions or make those inferences. Let's talk more broadly about things you can take off the shelf. You obviously use some infrastructure as a service or some platform as a service. Are you heavy users of AWS, Google Cloud? What's your cloud provider of choice? Yeah, we are roughly cloud uh, provider agnostic. So our customers have asked us to use AWS, certainly. We also use uh, the Microsoft GovCloud to a high uh, degree, especially that's the direction that, that our customers are moving in due to kind of security requirements. 
The other thing is that, um, and the reason we're cloud provider agnostic is we end up having to build our own clouds often at the at the edge, so to speak. So, you know, at a remote outpost, let's say a, a Ford operating base that has no internet connectivity or very weak internet connectivity. We end up effectively building our own data infrastructure out there. And so we have to basically be able to spin up all of our infrastructure on just standard server racks, if you will, or a ground control station, basically whatever we're given. And so our infrastructure, one of the key details that we thought through when we designed it from the beginning was the, was the ability to scale up and down based on the resources that we have available. So that the same infrastructure can run at a remote forward operating base as what we can use when we have the AWS cloud at our disposal. And then how do you synchronize data between these two systems when connectivity is present? Can you use the AWS Outpost, the on-prem AWS instances? I'm not actually familiar with the the specific term you're describing, whether AWS has on-prem instances. I'm, I'm certainly not familiar with us using that, but I, I could I could figure that out or I could I could get you in contact with the right person there. But for us, most of the time we are essentially just spinning up either Docker containers or Kubernetes clusters right on our own hardware or customer hardware that are provided to us at these forward operating bases. What's the continuous integration and continuous deployment system like for software that's getting deployed to drones? Yeah, this is a this has been one of the biggest challenges that we've had to solve as we've scaled as a company. You know, it's one thing to be able to hack on a drone when you're a 10-person company or a 50-person company and everyone can kind of say, hey, this is my drone, it's going to sit on my desk and I'm going to flash code on it. Um, today. And it's another thing to do that when you're a 250-person company, a 300-person company, and you know beyond as, as we continue to scale. So we've really invested a lot in the, the CICD process, the ability to check out hardware, the ability to do testing in simulation, software in the loop and hardware in the loop simulation. So we've built a lot of that um, pretty recently. We leverage CircleCI. We have GitHub Enterprise as kind of the, the back end. And then what we what our systems allow us to do is we can, you know, check in code into GitHub and have that automatically statically checked, run through software simulation, and then it creates basically a binary that can get flashed onto any of the drones. And, and we use um, a package manager called Nix as the kind of baseline to load our software onto these drones. And using Nix, we can control the drone all the way down to the, the device firmware level. So we're very vertically integrated. So if a new build of our drone software requires a change to a kernel-level driver, we can do that all the way through our build system and just get that flashed onto the drone and then take it for a flight test. The static analysis that you run in that process, is that your own static analysis tooling that you've built? Yeah, I think it's a combination. And this is, again, where this, this is not my personal area of expertise, but it's a combination of tooling that we've built and also you know standard tooling that exists in the environment, all the way from just linting the code to looking for very specific types of vulnerabilities, and then finally doing software in the loop testing to validate that you know this doesn't break any of our baseline functionality. What about machine learning models? Does the deployment process differ at all for the machine learning training pipeline? Yes, absolutely. So the, the challenge with the machine learning models, and, and this is the area that we're investing in heavily right now, is that it's very data-driven, which means it's a statistical process. And so the idea of a unit test or a pass-fail test is hard to describe in a machine learning model. 
because by definition, when we update the model, it will not do the exact same thing it used to do before. Just take a simple example. You know, if we have a set of baseline images and we have a model that can detect drones in those images, the version 1.0 of that model might have generated a specific bounding box around the drone on a specific image. And when we update to version 2.0, it may not generate that exact same bounding box. It might generate a bounding box that's slightly smaller or slightly bigger or slightly offset. That doesn't mean we failed the test. It doesn't mean the machine learning model is not working. It's just doing something slightly different. And so how do you capture that in the sense of a unit test? How do you use metrics to start capturing these things? Thinking at higher levels, you know, if we have a tracker that's generating all sorts of tracks through a machine learning process, what does it look like for that tracker to be getting better? What are the statistical um, metrics that we can capture? That's the area that we're investing in heavily. We still model this as unit tests to us. We have data sets that we've captured in our machine learning pipeline that are used as reference data sets. And then we run new models against those reference data sets to validate that we're getting, you know, uh, the same precision, the same recall, or better, are we getting the same track heuristics, um, track quality, track accuracy, things like that. But this is an area where it's very statistically driven instead of black and white. The customer interactions with the Anduril technology, what have you learned from actually deploying these pieces of hardware and seeing them being used in the wild? Absolutely. So, you know, I think the really cool thing about working in our industry is that our customers also end up being our partners. So I've worked in this industry for about a decade, and every customer that I've worked with, they're not just buying your technology and, you know, going to just expect the world of it, but they also want to work with you to make it better. And I would say that that's different from, say, like the self-driving car industry where, you don't buy a car so that you can go like work with Elon Musk to build a better Tesla. Or, you know, you, you, when the car gets there, you're not sending, you know, your ideas back to Tesla to say, like, hey, can you, can you do this? Can you add this feature? What's really cool about working with our customers is they're excited to go down this journey with us. So, um, you know, some stories I can share here. Our first uh, Anvil Interceptor, before we even had a name for it, we built that drone in six weeks and we entered it into a government competition. And we ended up winning that competition outright. We, 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 we did better than many of the other companies that were have been in that industry for, for many, many years. And what happened after that was really amazing in that the customer said, you know, you've got a really great product. It doesn't do everything, but it does something that's really special. We want to invest in you and we want to work with you to make this a better product. All the way from telling us, you know, here are the specific ways we want to use this. Here are some ideas for... Uh, improvements that could be made. You know, we really think you know, our original version of our interceptor drone did not have a radar on board. And that was a suggestion that our customer gave us to say, you know, we think we could, you guys could make this better by doing that. And so I think the feedback loop is, is really amazing in the defense space. Um, and I think it's one of the differentiators between the defense space and maybe commercial product development. The stack for software that gets deployed to a drone can you talk at all about the software architecture of what is on a drone? We've done a few shows about drones. I remember we did one about uh, Airware a while ago, and Airware was a company that they used, I think, a robot operating system, the ROS. Uh, they took a lot of stuff off the shelf. But tell me what you see as the the architecture as of the Anduril stack. Yeah, so, so our, our software stack is... In large part, again, as I, as I mentioned earlier, we use something called NixOS, which is the not only the operating system layer, but it's also our package manager, which enables us to control 
everything from the kernel level all the way up to the exact pieces of runtime that are going to run on our, our hardware. On the software side, we all of our code is written in C++ that runs in real time on the drones. Some major parts to call out are communications is one of the most important things when you're flying drones or any, any kind of thing in real time. So how do you make sure that the data is getting to the drone and how do you route it around to all the other assets that are in the sky? You know, we can have five to six helicopters flying around at the same time and, you know, two or three interceptor drones in the air. We can have towers on the ground, all sorts of stuff. And they're all communicating seamlessly and they're sharing data with each other and helping each other do their mission. And so how we communicate around the stack is very, very important to us and another area that we've invested in. We have a piece of technology called Flux, which is our mesh routing layer. And it allows us to basically move data around using very simple pub-sub mechanics, publish-subscribe mechanics. And we take care of how we move it around the mesh. So an example of this might be a tower might want to tell a helicopter drone where it sees a threat. And it might not have direct line of sight or even a communication link with that with that heli drone. You know, the, the ghost drone might only be able to see another ghost drone, which can see a ground control station, which can then see the tower based on antenna links, signal strength, all that stuff. Flux is the layer that we've built to move data around without having engineers to think about the, the logistics of moving that data. And so that's a part of our lattice system that gets deployed on every single drone is this flux layer. Another layer that is part of Lattice is the autonomy layer. So how do our systems think and make sense of the world? And then the final part of our system is the perception layer. And so I would say those three layers, communications, autonomy, and perception, make up the major parts of our stack. What about programming language choices? When do you need to use C++? When can you use a higher level language? Yeah, this is, I think, one of the seminal questions for us, which is that research ends up being done in a high-level language. R&D almost always ends up being done in Python or JavaScript or MATLAB, for example. But in production, we want to run everything in C++ because we want the runtime speed and we want the guarantees that C++ can give us, right? It's a, it's a, it's a statically, it's a, it's, a, it's a compiled language. And so you get a lot of benefits in terms of access to lower level memory logic and control over the over the runtime. But at the same time, when you're doing machine learning model development, for example, or you're doing autonomy algorithm development, you want to end up doing that in Python. And so we end up supporting both of those. We built libraries so that we, for example, our vision library enables us to do our model development in Python and then transpile that model into code that's optimized for running at the edge and have guarantees that what I developed in Python and the metrics I'm getting there will work when I get it onto a drone and it's running in C++. And so that takes away a lot of the guesswork for engineers and it gives us a platform to build upon. So I would say that for us, we do a lot of the R&D in Python or MATLAB. And then we have a team that's, that's focused around how do we ensure that the C++ runtime will match what we're doing in Python. What about the team structures? This is not a straightforward SaaS company. Are there any ways in which structuring teams or the management department is unique that would be informative? Again, we think of ourselves mainly as a software company. You know, the, the lattice platform is really the thing that, that Andrew brings to the table. And whether that platform is running on 
our hardware or another uh, customer's hardware or another company that we're partnering with hardware, our company organization is really built around around Lattice. I would say that the leadership in the company and the, and the way that the company decisions are being made is is really communal in the sense that we have a strong partnership across you know the perception team, for example, which I lead, uh, versus the autonomy team, versus our platform teams that are building kind of the, the tooling and infrastructure for uh, for the engineers, and also through all the way down to our hardware teams. We're very much a matrix organization, and so you've got you've got your areas of expertise, for example, perception, autonomy, platform, UI, UX, and then you've got the programs and projects that you're working on, for example, counter UAS or uh, ghost helicopter UAS. And so we matrix our teams onto those specific projects, and we have um, program leads that are technical running those projects, working closely with product managers. How do you benchmark the quality of your machine learning models and your sensor processing models? Yeah, so again, this is an area where we think of this as building blocks, right? Or, or as a pyramid, right? You've got to make sure that your algorithms work in isolation. That's the first part. So each of your sensors are running sensor processing, often with machine learning. The simple example would be a camera on a drone. It can detect things on the ground. And so we start to look at classic computer vision metrics, for example, precision or recall. Precision being of the things that the model is detecting, what percentage of them are accurate. And recall being of all the things that we wanted to detect, did we detect what percentage of those did we detect? So those are kind of model-specific metrics. But then a big part of what the, the, the Lattice system does that we're building is the sensor fusion. How do you put all of those things together and go from sensing to sense-making? And so that's like saying, you know, I have my camera detecting things, I have a radar detecting something, I have a sonar detecting something, I have a LIDAR detecting something. How do I put all that together and say, that's a car, and it's driving right at me, and that car might have, you know, uh, a munition on it. I got to be worried about that. And so for that, we need higher level metrics. And so we do a combination of things. We have track level metrics, track purity, track accuracy, things like that when we're tracking objects. But then we also do, one of the big strengths of Andril is that we do test events very, very regularly. Uh, we're testing every other week our entire counter UAS system. And so then we're measuring metrics that a customer might care about. So we're flying drones at our towers. Every other week, we fly two dozen drones and we say, how many of those drones did we detect? Were we able to detect it early enough? Were we able to respond to that drone? Were we able to take that drone out of the sky if it's coming to attack us? And getting engineers to be able to just go out to the test site and see that progress happening and work directly against the end metric that we're, gonna, we're trying to solve, that's another way we keep ourselves honest and make sure that we're building against the right things. Are there any kinds of restrictions or additional strictures that come into place when you're building software for national security needs? Are there any kinds of tooling that you need to be aware of, any kinds of additional testing that needs to take place? Yeah, absolutely. I think that when you're building things for the national security needs, definitely security becomes paramount, and it's something our customers expect of us and what we expect of ourselves. And so from the simplest things like ensuring that we're not putting any location in information into our binaries or into our source code that could identify where something was built or 
could be reverse engineered. That that's the, your your base layer. But then also thinking about how do we ensure that our communication links are secure? What happens if an adversary gets a hold of one of our drones? Can they hack into the rest of the network? And so thinking of how do you build a trustless network where you can revoke authority has been something that we've designed from the ground up in our system. And, and the, the Lattice system has the ability to identify rogue actors for users to take those out and to, and to react to malicious threats entering the network. The other thing that we've done is that we focus very heavily on ensuring that all of our data does not have to go back to a central cloud. So again, if you think about you know classic Silicon Valley examples, Facebook, Google, Tesla, who are doing machine learning, all of them are designed around this concept of, I'm going to collect data from the environment, and I'm going to bring it all back home, and I'm going to get it into my cloud, and I'm going to start doing my machine learning at scale on my supercomputer cloud centers. For us, we know that when our hardware and our systems end up in the real world, often that data can't come back to us for security reasons. And so we have to think about how do we do machine learning at the forward edge? How do we update our models at the edge? How do we give that power to our end users so that they can train our models or they can refine our models? And so that's been something that has been core to our system um, from the day we designed it. When you say perception of detecting perception around a drone, what does that actually mean? Do you need cameras all around the drone? Do you need thermometers? Do you need accelerometers? What do you need in order for a drone to have what we call perception? Great question. So I think the list of sensors is always endless. We could always add an additional sensor. But at the end of the day, it's the outcomes that we're looking towards. So what would it take for our drone to be able to detect a threat approaching a base? That's the way we think about it. Not that the drone has to sense everything at all times, but it has to solve specific problems for our customers who are in some of the most dangerous parts of the world. And for that, we again, we, we work backwards from what is the mission that we have to solve and then what are the sensors that we need to put in there. I can tell you for a ghost UAS, it's got a combination of electro-optical and medium-wave infrared cameras. It can optionally be shipped with a radar payload. And, and that actually just constitutes the majority of the sensors that we put on that UAS just for weight and power reasons. On our tower, we have any number of sensors because we know that will have more power available to us. And so we've got thermometers, we've got wind sensors, we've got a bevy of cameras, we've got multiple radars, you name it. The other thing that I think is important to describe here is that for the system to achieve its mission, and again, if it's detecting a threat coming towards a base or identifying a hostile actor, it's a combination of sensing and perception and also autonomy, right? So in order to sense something, you have to be at the right spot at the right time, or you have to come around from the right angle, right? Even if you have the best camera, the camera can't look through a wall. So the drone has to be able to recognize that, hey, there's a wall in my way. I need to move around to this corner, or there's a tree blocking my line of sight. I need to move so that I can get the right look angle. And we've designed our system to be able to do that, not just autonomously. So our systems can do things like scan and track, scan an area and our drone can identify something and track it, but also take cues from operators, so high-level playbooks, and you turn those into mission sets that it can run. Well, tell me more about synthesizing all the different sources of perception. Sure. So 
again, the, the way I think about this is at the first layer, you're just doing sensing. At the next layer, what you're starting to think about is sense making. I'll give you a specific example. So going back to detecting enemy drones that might be approaching a U.S. base. And we do that through a combination of our sentry tower and our interceptor UAS. At the first level, you've got all these sensors, and each of them alone might be very weak. So a radar can sense anything that's moving in the environment, but it's littered with false alarms. A tree blows in the wind, a paper bag flies around, you know, a bird flies around, a radar is going to pick that up. So it's got its strengths, but it's also got its weaknesses. A camera can give you positive identification. You could look at something and you can say with some confidence that might be a drone. But the camera can only look at one thing at one time, right? Uh, the camera's field of view is very narrow. And you might have a couple of different cameras, and so you have to figure out when you want to use each one. The next domain might be the radio frequency signature. You know, drones are communicating back to their operator, or they might be communicating back to their operator. So we can pick up on that signature. Combining all of these things requires what, what we think about as sense making. We use a combination of tracking technology, so um, common filters and the like. And we also use machine learning to start to say, you know, the radar is telling me there's something moving over there. I can get a camera on top of it. And the camera is telling me with some confidence, I think that might be a drone or a bird. And I've got RF signature emanating from that area. I can now put something together where the whole is greater than the sum of its parts. And I can tell a user, hey, we think with very high confidence based on these three different sources, each of which is not sure on its own, that we think there's a drone approaching your base. Has there been anything that is harder than you expected or easier than you expected? Surprises that have come up as you've been developing this technology? Sure. Putting things together is always much harder than it seems, at least on the outset. You know, we're, we're software engineers at heart at Android, And so when we built the Lattice platform, we thought, you know, we're going to get all this data coming in and we will be able to generate this, this very exquisite understanding of the world. But actually getting that to run in the real world and getting your drone to fly and do the thing you asked it to do, getting that last mile, uh, especially when you're touching hardware, is exceptionally difficult and exceptionally fun at the same time. And so I think that has been the biggest challenge, but also the most fun and rewarding at working at Android. You know, I can't think of many other companies where you know, you get to go out to a test site in beautiful Southern California weather and you can you can watch your drones fly around and then in real time make some software updates and figure out, oh, okay, now I can get the perception really dialed in. And so it's been both, you know, a blessing and a challenge, but getting things to work in the real world, not just on our systems, but on our government customer systems and on our partner systems has, has been a challenge, you know, whenever you're working with objects in the real world. They don't always behave the way you want them to. Hmm. Can you say more about that? Yeah. So, I mean, j just simple things like it's very hard to simulate real data from the real world. So when you're designing your algorithms, you might get a small tranche of data for, let's say, radar. We, we collect an hour's worth of radar data. And then when we go to the new environment that we're going to test in or it gets deployed into a customer environment, it turns out the radar signature looks nothing like you expected. 
to. You know, the drone, the, the radar is now mounted a little higher than you thought it was. It's getting multipath from the ground. And so your radar reflections are nothing like you, you thought they would be. How do you, how do you adapt to that? You know, you can have the best of plans in software and your simulation and your software in the loop simulation and your hardware in the loop simulation. But when you really get out to the real world, the world doesn't behave as cleanly as you thought it would. Or tomorrow it starts raining, and it turns out when it's raining, your camera can't see nearly as far far as you thought you could. You know, it's just fogging up your camera. And so, how do you, how do you adapt to that? Those are always challenging things. And then certainly, when you're building drones, things are going to break. We've had we know we've had our drones crash. We've had dozens of drones crash in the sky. We've had uh, algorithms that we think were going to work, and they've worked in sim. You know, dive bomb straight into the ground, and so building not just a very safe test environment for engineers, but also building the freedom for engineers to get out there, make mistakes, and iterate from those mistakes, just like you would at any other software company. I think that that's, that's the challenge and also the, the strength of Android. How big is the Android team at this point? We're closing in on 300 people at this point. So we're still growing pretty rapidly. I couldn't give you an exact number, but we're probably 270 to 300. What are the challenges of onboarding that many people that quickly? Yeah, great question. You know, everything is easier when you're very small. Communication is very easy when you're small because everybody knows each other by first name basis. Everybody kind of knows each other's life stories. They're friends with each other outside of work and they kind of understand, they can empathize with each other and where they're coming from. When you scale, you start to build, you know, team structures and, you know, I know this is my team and that's their team. And, you know, our team does this and your team does that. So stay out of my turf and, you know, I'll stay out of yours. And that's the thing that we've explicitly tried to avoid as we scale this company is how do we, st- how do we grow and still feel like we're a family and we're still working together and we're all in it for the common good and the common mission that this company shares. I think being a matrix organization really helps with this because you've got your home room, your home base in terms of the area of expertise that you have. So for example, perception engineer, but you end up touching all sorts of different parts of the company when you work on a project together, for example, our ghost UAS or our Sentry Tower. And keeping people moving across projects and touching different parts of the organization helps everyone still feel connected, even at the scale of 300 employees. And as we grow out to 3000 employees one day. There are several different products that you have at Anduril. You have this UAS system, you have the Sentry Tower, and you have the Ghost Drone. Could we go through each of these? Let's start with the UAS system. Sure. Yeah, so I think before we touch any of our hardware systems, it's worth mentioning the thing that every single one of our hardware systems and any system we deploy on with one of our partners shares, and that's the, the Lattice system that we build. That's the lattice software system that we build that is the brains behind everything we deploy. In fact, the code running on any of our systems is actually more similar than different because they're all running the same lattice code base, whether it's our tiny dust sensor that I'll talk about in a second to our giant tower. They're all running lattice. They're all running effectively the same perception modules, the same autonomy modules, and basically the same communications modules. Everything is shared at that level. And so if you think about Android as a company, what we build is Lattice. And these hardware products are just mechanisms for us to get Lattice out into the world. In terms of the products that we build, we do build the Sentry Tower. So the Sentry Tower is is basically a a fixed site uh, defense solution. And so if you've got a base and and we're 
you've deployed over 100 of these towers at this point in multiple continents. If you've got a base you want to defend or a perimeter you're trying to secure, the sentry tower's job is to sense that perimeter and detect anything that might be moving out there or stationary, actually. Uh, and we can do that for both ground targets, so vehicles, people, objects of interest, but also air targets. So that includes missiles that might be in the sky or drones that might be in the sky. Our sentry tower can detect all of those things and provide persistent awareness. Another product that we build is the Ghost UAS. The Ghost UAS is kind of the, the forward arm of the sentry tower, you can imagine. So because the sentry tower can't move, it has a fixed area it can protect. The Ghost UAS can go out search and it's got you know just over an hour of battery life. It's a it's forty pound drone, and so that means that it's man portable. A single person can carry this drone around, set it up with a single laptop, fly it. Um, it's basically a point and click interface, and the drone can go out and do things like search for anything moving in the environment, or you know hover in this position and and look for for objects of interest, or you know work together with the sentry tower to go positively identify anything that the sentry tower detects. Those are the kinds of things that we do with our, our Ghost UAS. The next product that we build is the um, Anvil Interceptor System. So again, this works with our sentry tower or Ghost UAS, and that is the kinetic defeat component of what Anvil builds. And again, this works because we have Lattice running on all of our systems. And so the same code can basically talk to each other and, and the tower can say, I think there's a drone out there. That drone is beelining towards our base. It might have a, a miss, it might have a munition on it. We need to defend the base. We can launch our, our Anvil UAS. And again, this still requires no operator control. The operator just gives it the go button and says, go out there and take that thing out. The Anvil opens up a launch box, fires out of it, very similar to like, you know, Iron Man launching, you know, the Iron Man suits launching out of a box and uh, it goes and gets underneath a, a enemy drone, gives the user a chance to confirm whether or not that this is an actual threat, and then it can ram into it to take it out of the sky. And then the, the last product that we build is our dust sensor. And so these are very small perimeter security sensors. It's basically a camera in a box and it can sit unattended for up to a month. It's an unattended ground sensor. So we use these in combination with the rest of our systems to protect a, a perimeter. So you could imagine that the tower can't see behind a tree, for example. We can put these little unattended ground sensors nearby and let it, and let it kind of fill in the, 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 the picture of the world. And again, th this all works because they're communicating with each other. I think about the, if you've ever played StarCraft or WarCraft, you have a, a view of the map. You have this little map that you can see, and some areas of the map are black because you do not have insight into what is going on in that area of the world. It seems like your system is built to kind of remove the blackness of the world and to survey the way the the area around the sentry towers together with these the ghost drones. Can you just tell me more about like the stack of the different systems, like? Century, what the Sentry Tower does in, in synergy with the Ghost Drone and, and what the overall vision is for these different systems interacting with each other. Yeah, absolutely. I'll relay a very quick anecdote that I think describes perfectly what, what you're saying, and I completely agree with you, which is 
you know, if you think about that map in StarCraft, the map initially starts off complete pitch black, except for, you know, maybe your own position. And as you reveal more and more of your map, you actually understand what's happening in the world and, and you can make more thoughtful decisions because of it. You know, we have had multiple customers come back to us after deploying, you know, our stack, whether it's our towers or our drones. And we've asked them, you know, you know how's, it, how's it been? You know, is it, is it useful? Are you guys able to do less work now because now you've got the tower defending your perimeter or the drone flying around for you? And they say, no, actually the opposite. We've been working harder than ever before because we had no idea all these things were around our base or, you know, we had no idea about half these things happening in the world and you guys have given us insight into it. And so now we've been able to take proactive action or we've been able to realize that something exists when we were flying completely blind prior to this. And I think that's exactly what, what you're describing with that analogy. So for specific examples that I can describe, I think both the, the, the Sentry Tower plus and Anvil example is very compelling, which is the tower is detecting threats and then allowing the Anvil drone to, to fly out and react to them. Um, and so the tower might detect uh, an enemy drone five kilometers away, for example, and get a positive confirmation that, okay, this might be a threat. And then we can have the tower and the drone work together, sharing data to get the drone in position to lock in. So the, the drone flies out based on the, the detections that the tower is getting. Similarly, we can do the same thing with our, our ghost UAS and our tower. We can have the tower detect something on the ground, maybe a vehicle, and we can send the ghost drone out to go follow that vehicle, for example. Our drones can also work with each other. We can do things like we can have a drone with a radar on it, detect something, and then send over another drone with a camera on it to get optical confirmation on the thing. I think the best way to summarize this is that everything we create is about giving operators a better understanding of what's happening so they can make better decisions. So it's kind of closing that loop with, uh, with our customers. As we begin to wind down, could you tell me more about the bigger future for Anduril? What are the other kinds of tools and systems that you expect your, yourself needing to build? Yeah, absolutely. I think we expect that the Lattice system is going to get used not just on our own products, but across the DOD and national security infrastructure. And, and, and that's what we want. We didn't just build Lattice so that we could fly our own drones around, although certainly we love to do that, but so that we can take all these amazing systems that, are, that the national security industry has developed and start to connect them all together and make better decisions based on them. So what we're starting to think about is how does Lattice work if we want to use it in space to control a satellite or move data around in space? How does Lattice work if we wanted to not fly it on our 40-pound drone, but a 300-pound drone? What about uh, an airplane flying in the sky? What about all sorts of other use cases for, for our system? And really, the thing here to think about that we're thinking about is, how does this work at scale? What does it mean when hundreds of systems are communicating with each other and working together uh, and working with operators? Not just operators that are right beside the drone, you know, or but people that could be hundreds of miles away. We really believe that at the end of the day, if we create systems for a better understanding of the world, our users can make better decisions, our military can make better decisions. And so that's the future that, that we're trying to build. There are lots of different hardware and software systems that 
you've built yourself, and there's also lots of things that you're taking off the shelf. Are there any challenges to integrating third-party hardware, third-party software with the stuff that you've built in-house? Yeah, absolutely. You know, we work very closely with the companies that we partner with to make sure that we're getting the best and the most out of their systems and sensors. Almost always when we start a partnership with, uh, with another company, we're not using their sensors to their best effect. I can give you one example where, you know, when we started working with a vendor for a radar, we noticed that it wasn't seeing everything it could see. And so we had to go back with them a number of times to open up that radar system, work with them to get the most out of it, because we can do things with our Lattice platform that they couldn't do as a sensor provider by themselves. You know, we could run their radar in a more open configuration, knowing that our Lattice platform could come in behind it and run machine learning over the top to reduce the number of false alarms it was generating or use one of our cameras to work together. And so the biggest thing for us has been, you know, and I... Our vendors and our partners are really excited about this, which is, you know, they've built these amazing products and we can take them to the next level by bringing them together and starting to combine them and use them in ways that hadn't been thought before by putting them all under the same platform. Just to wind down, can you tell me about your own personal career, your journey, and what led you to eventually joining Andrew? Absolutely. So for me, I had always wanted to work in the national security space coming out of undergraduate and going forward, I, I always felt like these are the most challenging problems and these are the most important problems for our country. They're, they're challenging in the sense that you get access to things that you know no company could do on its own. No company can put up hundreds of satellites in the sky, put up hundreds of planes in the sky, can have the, the footprint that our, that our military has and they're also important because I believe that our, our country has an important role to play in maintaining kind of the world that we live in and kind of the, the productivity and, and growth in, in our country and around the world. So I've always wanted to work in this space. I would say that I, there were two very interesting experiences in my career that led me to Anderil. The first one was I worked at a company called Palantir, which was very much the predecessor to Anderil. And Palantir was really a software 100% company. It was really thinking about how do you integrate data? How do you do data integration? How do you connect all these pieces of data with each other? And how do you present them to a user? And then after that, I went and worked at a more focused research company that really looked at the most challenging problems in the DoD space, uh, mostly ones coming from places like DARPA that are thinking five to 10 years ahead. And how do we solve these extremely hard problems? The things I learned from both spaces is that there are people in the research world who don't understand the software world. You know, they, they can solve the hardest math problems. They can solve the hardest sensor problems, but they're not a Silicon Valley software company. And the Silicon Valley software company that I worked at didn't understand how to do these very challenging sensing, autonomy, perception problems that, that there's expertise in the DoD space. The thing about Anduril is it brings those two worlds together. And that's what really excites me about it. We're a first-class software company, but we're also working with real sensors. We're building real drones. We're, we're putting things in the sky, or we're working with partner companies that can do that. And that's really, really special. You can't find that at other companies in the Bay, nor can you find that in you know, your traditional DoD contractor primes. That, that putting those two talent bases together with the senior folks who've worked in either industry and just fresh minds coming out of undergrad or graduate school Andrew is a really, really special place because it brings all of those people together.
Okay. Well, Gokul, thank you so much for coming on the show. It's been a real pleasure talking to you. Absolutely. Thanks for having me, Jeff.